Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today from Cape Town in South Africa is Professor Yanita de Vries, who is the director of the Ethics Lab at the Neuroscience Institute and is an associate professor in bioethics in the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town. She is a member of the Research Ethics Board of Médecins Sans Frontières, the steering committee of the Global Forum for Bioethics in Research and the advisory board for the Center of LC Resources and Analysis at Stanford University. She was a member of the World Health Organization's Genome Editing Expert Advisory Committee and the H3 Africa Steering Committee. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Malaya. The vision of the Neuroscience Institute seems to be a continental one, which is always so refreshing to see, stating an Africa where people achieve their full potential through brain health. It's an interdisciplinary research unit with several research streams. You're the director of the Ethics Lab and as an ethicist work across ethical challenges that arise in the context of new and emerging health technologies. Please tell us about the core role of the Ethics Lab. So thank you. The um, So the Ethics Lab that we've recently started, it's hot off the press actually. Um, we've only started calling ourselves that um, at the start of this year, is to foster, this is our mission statement, to foster transformative ethics scholarship, to disrupt and shape ethics in health research and innovation, and to center Africa as the, as the context and driver of global health ethics. So what we mean by that is to both critically engage with what we mean by ethics, right? What, what, does, it, what, what, what does ethics mean? Um, and how do we approach that in our scholarship? How does our context, our African location, impact on what we think about ethics and the theories that we apply? And then how do we, and, and what opportunities does our context and our, our, our positionality uh, raise for us to, to do things differently? So, so at the Ethics Lab, we come together, we're a group of, of interdisciplinary scholars, philosophers, um, political scientists, um, filmmakers and myself as an ethicist and sociologist um, to ask broad questions about new and emerging health technologies and what it means to be human from the view of our African context. But basically it means that we engage with a variety of, of technologies such as AI, genomics, robotics and neuroscience to think about the ethics of these technologies and how they change our understanding of what it means to be human. Talking about the AI part of the conversation, it is such a topical issue at the moment. One of the things that you spoke about was what it means to be human. Can you expand a little on the role of, of technology and how it's changing what it means to be human? Or, or is it? Yeah. So, so AI is, is one technology. Um, the other that I would bring into that conversation is, is human genome editing and particularly germline genome editing, which raises questions about are we ultimately at risk of being replaced by machines, right? Is, is, there, a, is there a possibility that humans 
will become obsolete, that that AI and robots can do it all, or that superhumans can do it all, right? That we can engineer through genome editing people who are pain resistant or super muscular or super intelligent. Um, the, the questions that we engage with are, is, is that really a risk, right? At what point must we start worrying about this as a possibility? But also, what other ways are there for us to consider the relationships between um, technology and humans? And some of the thinking that we, that we apply um, comes from an anthropologist at UCT called Francis Nyamjo, who writes a lot about incompleteness. And he, he says, look, what we must think about in relation to all of these technologies is the human as being incomplete. So we are constantly, he speaks about how we are all constant works in progress. We are all constantly evolving in terms of our own personality. I mean, this is what age does, right? It, it changes our experience, but also in terms of our knowledge and in terms of our ability. And technology, our quest for technology is part of the quest towards completeness, right? It's part of the, the, the move towards developing something that is more than what, than what we currently are. And if we think about technology in that way, if we think about AI in that way and, and germline genome editing in that way, we're really starting to think about these technologies as an extension of the human, as, as amplifying that what we cannot yet do. And so this is something that we're really playing around with in the ethics lab is, is how do we, how does that particular view change our relation with these technologies and our thinking about the ethics of, of these technologies? You, for me, have put a very positive approach towards this and one of, of progression and advancing. Are there any situations where you feel that ethical considerations can conflict with other priorities. So we, we're speaking about the good, but what about the negative? What about the bad? And although we're looking for this uh, space of, of human completeness, there's also human limitations that maybe inhibit the way that things can be used just because we have our own inherent limitations. Yes. So I think I think if our starting premise is that technology and the human are in conflict with each other, we end up with this kind of zero-sum game, right? This zero-sum equation where something is either technology or it's human. And if it's not human, it's a threat, right? And these, this, this is part of the, the framing that we see around things like ChatGPT, for instance, and discussions around students. Like work has to be either written by humans or if it's written by ChatGPT, it's plagiarism or it's cheating, Right? And so that, that reveals a kind of a, a zero-sum equation, right? It's either human and it's the student's original work and then, and then it can be marked and applauded, or it's not, in which case we need to eradicate it and, or, or regulate against it, right? We need to get students to write with pens again, for instance. Now, what the incompleteness framing allows us to do is to say, well, what if we don't think about these technologies as either good or bad, or either in competition with the human um, or not? But what if we think about them as extensions of the human, right? What if we don't attach normative significance, right, ethical significance to 
their very existence, right? What if we don't judge them as being good or bad at the outset? But what if we creatively engage with how these technologies increase our opportunities to be fully human or to or to be good humans, right? So the technologies in themselves, or at least in how we like to think about them in the ethics lab, is that these technologies themselves are not necessarily good or bad, and they can be good used for good or bad. And, and so the same kinds of ethical considerations about what do we think? What, what are our ethical priorities, right? What is the place of justice and fairness, for instance, in the world? And how do we how do we think about creating a world, increasingly creating a world where, where justice guides our understanding? Um, we can ask those questions working with technology rather than, than against it. Such a fascinating field and one that is limitless, especially at this point in time. You're listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity, and today we're talking to Associate Professor Janita de Vries, who is the Director of the Ethics Lab at the Neuroscience Institute and Associate Professor in Bioethics in the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Now, besides your day job, you're actively involved in several working groups and committees. For example, you're the founding chair of the H3 Africa Working Group on Ethics, a member of the World Health Organization's Genome Editing Expert Advisory Committee, a member of the Steering Committee for the Global Forum for Bioethics in Research, and several other structures. I was very interested to read that your work with the World Health Organization Genome Editing Advisory Committee led to a ban on heritable human genome experiments in Russia because the field is currently too premature. Please, can you share a couple of impactful outcomes from a few of the projects that you've been involved with? Yeah, and, and I think what is what is interesting in 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 how I'm going to respond to your question is we can think about these, these impacts in very grand ways, right? So getting the WHO Director General to liaise with the Russian government to, to, to stop particular technological developments at that point. Don't know that they were banned, but, but at least temporarily suspended is a grandiose out, output, right? The kinds of outputs that I'm really much more interested in and, and, proud of, I guess, um, are the ways in which I have fostered my students, right, in the ways in which I've grown capacity in the people that I've trained to similarly be curious about science and technology and the ethics thereof, and to be nimble in, in thinking about how technologies can be used to create the kind, to actively kind of pursue the kinds of societies that, that we would like to pursue. So, so in that sense, the impacts for me are the very constitution of the ethics lab. So the fact that after more than a decade of being at UCT, we've now got such a thriving group of, of young scholars excited by and engaged in technology and the ethics of technology and science is, is wonderful. Um, the fact that some of my students are now at the NIH, for instance, interested in neuroscience um, and so on and so forth for me is, 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 is a really important part of my, of my impact. 
Um, but there have been others. So, for instance, showcasing through H3 Africa and the work that I and, and many others did together, showcasing that actually if ethics is embedded and integrated into the development of science from the start, that it, that it can play a really important and supportive role in scientific developments and that it can offer, it's almost like I, I like to think about ethics as a bit of a touchstone, like, a, like an opportunity for reflection and debate as science progresses rather than ethics only as something that comes afterwards, right? Ethics that the ethics committee does, for instance, which is always punitive. And I like to think about ethics as something that enables critical engagement with the kinds of questions that technological development raises. So those are the kinds of impacts that I think I'm, I'm also very proud of because I think they're, they're working to, to shift a culture um, in the field of health research and health sciences that starts where people start to appreciate the creative and, and, and reflective importance of, of ethics integration in science. Thanks for sharing some of those achievements and the integrated role, because sometimes, and I think from the, the corporate world, almost the, the the risk and ethics committees are, are, are kind of like the handbrake on a lot of projects, as opposed to the enablers of, of environments. And it's a it's a way of changing your attitudes and working together for for the good of the developments um, that the projects are trying to achieve. Absolutely. And, and Amalia, sorry to interrupt, but you, you probably need both, right? So, so I'm not undermining the fact that, that ethics or risk management committees or ethics committees play important roles in, in business is a good example, health research is another. I, I, think, I think what's really important for me is that, that that can't be the only way in which collectively we engage with ethics, that there has to be something else that we do as well which is the, these kind of creative and, and reflective and curious questions about the ethics of our world, really. I would imagine that sitting on these various committees and, and having that the responsibility of, um, that, let's say, progressing and directing ethics, that they have a, a really, um, I suppose, a, a, a strong effect on the direction that ethics is taking, which could transcend down into respective institutions and, and countries. Would, would that be the case? Yes, I, I think that is the case. And I would hope that, that, that my engagement in some of those committees allows people to, 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 to recognise the importance of, of that culture change. And in a way, our presence at UCT, the ethics lab, the formation or establishment of the ethics lab at UCT, I hope would also have the kind of example function where if, if, we can, if we can change the way we think or integrate ethics here at UCT in the Faculty of Health Sciences, that we could then equally you know, form an example for other African universities to, 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 start, to start thinking about ethics in different ways. Um, and, and when I say that, I, just a little kind of what, what I haven't yet spoken about is, so if I've spoken a bit about our approach and I've spoken about incompleteness. The, the complementary part of the work that we're trying to do in the ethics lab is to at the same time then ask questions about how do we do our work differently? So I, I spoke about Francis, Francis Nyamjo, who, who speaks about incompleteness. 
But he says what incompleteness does, a recognizing of our incompleteness, invites in conviviality. If, if I'm recognizing as a professor and a leader in this space, that, or an associate professor, I must say, if, if I recognize my incompleteness in, in my knowledge, for instance, and in my scholarship, I don't have to be intimidated by the superior knowledge of some of the brilliant people that come and work with me, right? Because, because their knowledge is different. They don't share my experience. They don't share my perspectives, but they, they bring different knowledge. And conviviality is the, 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 the approach or the, the, the term that we use to say, well, how do we then create an academic environment where we celebrate abundance, not scarcity, right? Where we celebrate each other's achievements um, and are not intimidated by them. And I think for me, that's really an important part of the, of the, of the culture change that we're trying to achieve because academic, academia is very tough. It's very toxic. It's very hard. You can, you're constantly battling really tough criticism through peer review, for instance, through um, ad hominem committee review, through grant application uh, reviews. You're constantly battling with rejection. Um, and, and that's really tough, right? You, you have to expose yourself. Uh, imposter syndrome is never very far away. And so our, the second part of our work is to say, well, how do we then try to do work differently that is still world leading? We're interested in, in world-class scholarship, but how do we do it in a way that is supportive um, and convivial? Conviviality will be my new word of the week. It really encapsulates so much and changing out of a toxic environment. There's no, it, it just makes no sense to be working that way when you've got these opportunities to do things better. Turning away from the ethics side and more towards you as a woman and um, some of the dynamics that come into play, you're involved in so many different committees. Would you say that being a woman is possibly one of the reasons that you take on so many more responsibilities? Possibly. It's quite hard saying no. Um, and feeling that service is an important component, you know, there's there's a bit of pressure there, um, which no doubt comes, partly comes from my culture raising as a woman, right? The, the idea that I need to service and provide and support, Um there is also some pressure there about making sure that 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 women are represented on committees and panels, you know, making sure that that there is a sufficient number of women that are part of committees and idea generation and so on and so forth at high levels. So so that we started to shift the balance. So I think being a woman partly partly matters there. Part of the reasons that I ask us is that. One area which consistently comes up uh, is that we as women are not as good at professional networking as men are, but it is such a crucial factor in career development, in exposure. So based on your experiences, how do you think women can become more effective at building and, and nurturing their professional networks? So I think networking is something that I do particularly well, um, which is probably partly why I get invited to so many different kinds of, of national and, and global or international committees and, and activities. 
I, I think I, I'm probably disadvantaged being a woman in some ways. And, and there are certainly some kinds of behaviors that I engage with that are not natural to me because I feel they help, you know, help networking. It sounds, that sounds worse than it is. But what I mean, for instance, is after a conference, people going to the pub and or going to an, a, a bar and, and drinking loads of alcohol. I, I don't particularly like alcohol very much myself, and a glass of wine does it for me. You know, that's just not something that comes easily or naturally to me. And yet, it's quite important when you're at a conference that you somehow engage in that way. And in, in those cases, I would say that I've, I've engaged in behaviors that, that aren't natural to me simply because it's important sometimes to be seen to be that kind of person. But I would say that as a, as a woman, I also, I'm also able to leverage my, my womanness in, in networking. So for instance, I care about people. Now, of course, men care too, right? I mean, I don't mean in any way to suggest that this is a, this is a trait that only women possess, but, but I really care. And I don't have to pretend that I really care. So if I if I if I'm at a conference and a student comes up to me and and wants to tell me about their work or their challenges, I'm really interested. Now that is true for the students. It's also true for you know Professor So and So who who I chat to. I, I care about people. That seems to me to be a fundamental attribute for networking. It's like if you if you really listen to what somebody's telling you or what they're not telling you, but what they're kind of you know, what you can get between the lines, that helps tremendously because that that too is a way of building relationships. Empathy, right? Listening, empathy, caring. I mean, these are things that that have that have really tremendously helped my network. Um, it has helped me build relations with people. And ultimately, networking is about relation building. Yeah, building up on that social capital. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, and today we're talking to Associate Professor Janita de Vries, who is the Director of the Ethics Lab at the Neuroscience Institute and Associate Professor in Bioethics in the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof. de Vries, education is a gateway to opportunity. You hold a, a Master of Science in Rural Development, Sociology, as well as a Master of Science in Social and Political Sciences, and you attained your DPhil in Public Health Bioethics. Please tell us about your academic pathway and what led you to become an ethicist. So, so the, the arrival at ethics was entirely serendipitous. Um, I had never imagined finding myself in, in, in this particular seat nor had I imagined finding myself in an academic career. Um, the, I, I started off, so I, I don't come from, I'm the first person in my entire extended family to have attended university. So I come from a family of nurses, both my mother and father are nurses, which in, in, in the Netherlands, which is where I come from, is not an academic degree. So it's, it's a professional degree. Um, and, and none of my cousins or aunts or uncles, nobody went to university. Um, so I had no, no imagination of what a university career could look like, right? what an academic career might entail. Um, I've always been interested in, in biology in different ways. I've been interested in our natural world. 
And so, and, and I had a bit, to be very honest, I had a bit of a crush on, our bio, on my biology teacher at the time, which meant that I chose to start studying biology. So my very first attempt at studying anything was, was in biology in the Netherlands, um, where I um, started, where, where, where I completed two years, but I also realized that, that I, I actually wasn't that interested in these very narrow questions of science. I mean, we were asked to study and regurgitate a lot of information. And I, I use the word regurgitate because that's how it felt. Like I, I could do that work, right? I, I excelled. I passed all my exams. I, I went through with flying colors. I just didn't like the completely unreflective, uncritical engagement with the science that I was asked to produce, right? Or to, or to write down in my exam papers. So that led me to, to, after two years, just to realize that maybe this wasn't quite for me. And I abandoned that degree. So I, I then packed up and started studying sociology, which was much better at an agricultural university. So that suited me much better because it, that degree spoke about the practical application of knowledge, right? How do we use, in that case, biotechnology as a tool for social transformation? And the degree allowed me to ask those questions. So I completed that degree and I, I, I thoroughly loved it. I then again had a crush on an Italian guy. <laughs> so, so this is why I'm, I'm saying a lot of this was quite serendipitous because I, I then was looking for opportunities to move to Italy and there was a PhD degree at something called the European University Institute, uh, which is a European PhD level um, social science and humanities training institute. So I went there and spent spent a couple of years um, l doing work around science and technology studies and obesity of all of all places, of all things. But that again, I, I found myself in a place that I didn't really enjoy. So so socially, the the institute was fantastic. It was about a hundred people from all over Europe with generous stipends living in Italy. You can just imagine. I had a blast at the time, but. But I didn't thrive academically because I had a supervisor who completely didn't work for me. I mean, he was an economist, a rational choice economist. I'm a social constructivist. For those of you listeners for whom that means anything, these are like essentially incompatible worldviews. He was not that interested in my in my in my research. He wanted me to perform, asked me to you know produce text every two weeks. I just I, I couldn't thrive in that in that in that space. And so in a moment of PhD boredom, I applied for a post at the University of Oxford, um, which a postdoc, so you know, applied even though I was still doing my PhD, um, which was about genomics and ethics and malaria. So it was a, a project called Malaria Gen, population and genomic study across many African countries um, looking at um, malaria and genomics. And at that point, I'd already done two stints of postdoc degree work in laboratories in Cuba and Ghana. So I had relevant experience in genomics laboratories uh, or genetics laboratories, even though in the agricultural fields. But, you know, the technologies are very similar. I had this broad interest in questions of the social in conjunction with, with science um, and so I got the post, which was very interesting because I now I didn't anticipate that at all. Um, 
but I left Italy, abandoned, eventually abandoned that degree. So I've abandoned degrees twice. Found myself thriving at Oxford. I, I loved the environment. I loved that environment gave me everything I needed in terms of satisfying my intellectual curiosity. I then applied for funding, got PhD funding and pursued a PhD there with my supervisors who were also my line managers. And then I fell in love again with a South African. <laughs> so, so then looked for opportunities to, to, to move here and, and eventually then ended up at UCT, which is where I've been for the last decade. So serendipity really is the very short answer. <laughs> I do like the fact that you weren't afraid of giving something up in the pursuit of attaining something better continuing to find what what resonates with you and uh, culminating where you've got the right environment to to thrive and pursuing the right type of of activities have there been any obstacles that you've encountered as a woman as you've developed your career absolutely and and i would say quite a few um so 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 just to get back to that point in Malaya so so and this is really a, a message I would like to kind of firmly embed in the minds of the people listening is that sometimes failure or or or, or doing something that other people might view as a failure if that makes total sense for you right if that fits for you if you understand why you're making particular choices they can still be the right choices so in this case, abandoning quite a prestigious PhD post because it didn't fit is, was never a failure in my mind. It made total sense. And so giving yourself the freedom to pursue your dreams or to, to find that what really stimulates you, that is your responsibility. You must, you must pursue that what, what nurtures and sustains you sustains you now as a woman there are many ways there are many obstacles right from our acculturation as women as women right this constant feeling of not quite being enough that that many women have right we're never quite good enough we're never quite as good as you know the male brother or the male you know as as our male colleagues or constantly questioning ourselves feeling like we're imposters that burden is huge and it's there forever, I think. I mean, I, at least I, I still have that, right? I still need to remind myself that imposter syndrome is just something that happens in my mind and that there's no evidence that suggests I'm not good enough. So, so there's, there's these internal kind of boundaries or internal constraints that we place on ourselves as women that limit us. And then the world around us often tells us we're not good enough either, right? So um, it treats us in sexualized ways, and I encounter that often, right? We, I, I'm, I'm not an old-looking person. I'm, I'm older than I appear, and so people tend to treat me as a girl, um, tend to not listen when I speak, or treat me as just a, you know some some like a fly on the wall or kind of somebody who doesn't quite need to be taken seriously. People sometimes encroach on my bodily integrity in ways that I don't like even not even not in a sexual way but touching me is often I find that inappropriate if it comes from colleagues um outside of a particular understanding right 
and comments, right? I'm, I'm mansplained. If I, I the other day I was on a, on a on a Zoom call with lots of quite high level people, where somebody made a, a very generic generalizing comments about genomics in Africa that I thought was completely inappropriate by somebody in another part of the world who I don't know whether they've even ever traveled here. Now, I've happened to have done a lot of work on ethics of genomics in Africa, and so I had typed a comment in the chat saying that I don't think that that generalized comment is appropriate, and that's not how my world, how I see these things playing out. After which I was really mansplained, you know, this, this man then felt it appropriate for me to lecture me in a Zoom chat that everyone could see. Um, that just happens, you know, it, it happens and it happens quite regularly. Um, and I spoke the other day with with another female professor. She's in Oxford now, and, and she told me something that I, that resonated is so true that I'd never quite realized that I do too, is that as a woman, if she directly comes out and asks, you know, she's very directive and says, this is what I need, A, B, C, she tends to not get what she needs from her male line managers, supervisors, and so on and so forth. If she presents what she needs as a problem, I have got this problem. I don't really know how to solve it and and re- relies on, on the senior male to, to help find a solution to this problem. Then, then, you know, as long as she can, she can create an environment in which the male senior colleagues imagine that they've come up with a solution, then they'll go out of their way to help her. Now, I do that too, right? I use my... I present my, my womanness as, as a source of vulnerability that needs protection. And, and I'm a bit ashamed, but that's sometimes how it works, right? Um, to get what I need, to get my, my team to thrive. So I, I, my, my womanhood matters in my scholarly career a lot. Those are really fascinating insights. I think a lot of the takeouts for me today are really going to be about limitations, not just on self, but also other people, the way that other people perceive individuals. And if you can frame things in their context, then you're able to attain what you need from a resource point of view. But they are often reluctant to see through a different lens, through a lens that's not their own. We're unfortunately running out of time today. So if I can please ask you as we close out the conversation to share a few words of inspiration or motivation for girls and women who are listening to us on the continent. So so concluding thoughts would be for people to to look up some some internet guidance on scarcity, scarcity versus abundance mindsets. And to then reflect about self in relation to abundance. So abundance meaning there is enough for everyone to go around. And our womanhood is a source of abundance too. Like we can think about it as scarcity and limitations and all the things we can't do because we're women. But actually, there's a lot of stuff that is that is able and open, that is able that we can do because we are women. And maybe we can do it better because we are women. And so to, to say that, be always reflective and, and always be mindful about the way that you, about your own positionality in the world and then seek 
to manifest your dreams and to live by your dreams in a way that 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 plays to your strengths and and that is that that gives you what you need to thrive thank you for that great message i really thinking about abundance that there are no limits and i've really enjoyed today's conversation it's been a pleasure to host you excellent thank you so much you have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to Professor Yantina de Vries, who is the director of the Ethics Lab at the Neuroscience Institute in the Department of Medicine at the University of Cape Town.